Hello, and we're back. Episode 3 on this eventful journey. The pod is still coming out, the demand is still voracious, and we have still not been cancelled. In spite of the old people that have been writing and protesting us, um, they're showing their defiance by staying in their retirement homes and not listening to our podcast. But we're not going to tolerate this behavior much longer. Isn't that right, Ed? Yeah, so after talking to you offline and reflecting on my actions, I spent a very solemn afternoon uh, in a bonsai reflecting pool just thinking over all the things that I said in the last episode. And it was a frank conversation with a dear friend of mine. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys know him, but he's an elderly gentleman, uh, Joseph Robinette Biden. And while his ankle was healing from playing with his dear dog, uh, we had a conversation. And he brought across to me the error of my ways and how I acted. So I've uh, have since changed my opinion and what we're going to be doing. We're no longer going to be age-gating this podcast. It's a little extreme. People over the age of 70, some of them are still people too. So what we're going to do is anybody over the age of 70 that makes over $400,000 net income a year, no longer restricted. You're welcome to be one of our, our fans and one of our avid listeners. Just wanted to clear that up because those people are people too, as I've recently years, uh, learned over this past year. So Ed, I could be wrong, but I've heard of a method of humor called sarcasm. And I feel like you're, you're digging, you're driving at something. What, uh, is there a point you're trying to make with all this talk about uh, older individuals? Well, I'm just getting ahead of the current way that things are flowing in the, this, the year of our Lord 2020, trying to make sure that we get out ahead of our new system and try to just really drive home that the new current hip cool thing to do is to make sure that anybody over the age of 70 just doesn't matter to society. Uh, we can lock them in their homes for a length of period of time. It's just as long as they're not wealthy, then we don't really care about them. And that's just, I want that to be the official view of the podcast. Are you suggesting that recent government and policy changes have not been good for old people? Well, I've just been systematically, I can't be in so many places at once, but at the beginning of the year, I just kind of kept going around uh, to a lot of elderly homes and just started killing people over the age of 70. Nobody seemed to care um, until one of those uh, fateful days in early March uh, after, ooh, I can't even keep track of all the deaths at this point, but everything got put to a halt, to a standstill, and then I said, okay, fine, not rich white people, not rich old white people, I won't kill those people. And then everything just kept going along tickety-boo and just keep on going killing and Nothing's really changed. It's it's been really good business. I'm I'm glad that we've come to the same the same page here as a society that deaths matter. Of course they matter. As long as you're under the age of 70. Uh for those of you listening at home, there is a leader we have in our prover- province of Alberta who's known as a premier. We have uh, Premier Jason Kenney, and he's worked extremely hard to ensure that anybody over the age of 70 that doesn't have access to private health insurance, which isn't much of a thing here in Canada. Anybody who's not rich and elderly just doesn't really have a chance to live, or at the very least has the most minimalist experience in the last five, ten years of their life. 
So can you tell me about why these old people need privatized health insurance? Well, it's just the rich people that we want to have privatized health care. We want to have a two-party system. So if you make a certain amount of money, that way you can pay a private doctor to get better service and better care because you're worth more if you have more money. Or at least I think that's the rhetoric. I'm still trying to get the hang of these things, but I think that's what Kenny's been driving towards. And I'm not personally going to speak to him because I haven't paid him $5,000 to sit down and, and uh, press the flesh, uh, as he likes to call it, at these local rallies that he's been doing, or local meetings that he's been doing. But So are you suggesting that the measures put in place to try to protect old people against coronavirus have been largely ineffective? Well, it depends on what you mean by ineffective, because I think they're effective at ensuring that a lot of old people are dead. Ed, 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 you've, you've had this have, joke. I believe we're over 550 dead Albertans from the, from the course of this pandemic, the majority of them being over the age of 70. So, you know, just have at her. And if, if they don't die and if they're very careful, very careful about who they see and they want to ensure that they have a valuable Christmas and they, they don't interact with anyone at all besides their service attendant, then just... M- just then, maybe we can make it their lives just so miserable that they want to get the virus. And that's, that's really, I think, is what we're trying to drive home here. So, Ed, for people who don't know you and don't know your sense of humor, I'm hoping that we can have a discussion to maybe get behind the veneer of sarcasm. Be, be real with us. Be upfront. What, what's going on with the old people and coronavirus? And, and what are your thoughts? Well, it's pretty well-known at this point that if you have more than one comorbidity, that you're much more likely to have a lethal dose of coronavirus. What is a comorbidity? Comorbidity is some other underlying condition, so high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, being overweight, having cardiovascular issues. Um, so Being old? Or you could say just being old. So if you've lived long enough and you've smoked, or if you have developed diabetes over the years because you've been on this earth longer and it's higher likelihood that you have health issues because you're over a certain age, then you're much more likely to, uh, to fall to this deadly, deadly disease. Okay, so we know that old people are especially susceptible to coronavirus. I think we heard about some of these... Uh, outbreaks that happened in long-term care facilities. Do you, can you comment on that? Oh, the holding pens? Yeah, we, uh, we make sure that they're kept far away from uh, any productive members of society. And then once we've kind of put them into a dank, cold corner, we realize that we could have repurposed that space for, well, we can't really put field hospitals in there, unless it's private field hospitals. But we're trying to figure out a way to get them out as quickly as possible without really costing the taxpayers money or, well, not look bad in the process. So, and and on your topic of sarcasm, I'm, I'm sure that you're aware these days that we can just say whatever we want. And then if someone's upset with me, I can just say that I'm joking afterwards if they're upset, but. You seem pretty bitter and disillusioned with our government. Well, no, I just watch what they do. I don't really see it as disillusionment. I'm, I'm, I've got a clear, clear eye on the prize. Um, 
see if you let 600 people about by the time this podcast comes out let 600 of your constituents die from a preventable disease someone asks you a point blank question and says do you feel like you failed in this in this strategy or what you've done you can just turn to them and say that sounds like a mean question i'm not going to answer that question because that felt mean so if that's the current way that our political representatives want to go about things then that's that's just the way things are heading i'm just trying to get on this bandwagon as quickly as possible and uh you know just kind of exist yeah so for for anyone who's not an albertan or not following what's happening in alberta we have some of the highest incident rates of coronavirus in the country and when you scale some of those numbers, I've heard that it's just been ridiculous. Um, it's our R value, right? Yeah, the reproductive value, um, jumping from person to person. Um, yeah, we have a super high R value. Yeah, and we also, we have just a, an absurd percentage. In, in the city that I live in, in Edmonton, it's close to 1% of the active population is currently sick with the virus. So if you take that yeah. and then you figure out how many of those are old people that can't see their families, then you've, I don't know, you've set up a really nice situation for our conservative leaders to try and conserve the youth, the average median age of, uh, of their voting base, which I, I hear they're trying to make it in with the kids these days. So I'm not sure if we should spend all of today's episode talking about this worthless uh, piece of shit. But you, it's interesting that you said that he is getting a lot of flack online because 30 million of our taxpayer dollars every year is going to a energy war room. And what that means is they've hired a lot of people to get together and tweet and create social media campaigns to reinvent the image of Albertan energy and to promote a pro oil and gas, pro-pipeline sort of ideology. So over the course of the, this year and a half now, or two years, close to two years, that they've instigated this war room, we've now found out that they have not had any significant impact on our current situation. Which, to be fair, oil took a deep dive. So their budget earlier this year of saying, hey, if we'll have a balanced budget if oil is worth more than $65 per barrel. We'll be absolutely fine. So there was an opinion piece posted on CBC News on July 30th of this year. And it says that in the 2019 election, Albertans were promised an energy war room that would fight fake news and share the truth about Alberta's resource sector and energy issues. There's a $30 million per year budget for the war room and this opinion piece says it's hard to overstate the fiasco the war room has been all of our hard-earned money is thankfully going towards some people to sit in a room and and tweet as opposed to buying respirators or helping people in alberta we're landlocked we can only really get our oil out a few ways we have train we have a current pipeline that goes out to the west and there isn't that much else it's very difficult to try and haul all of our crude oil 
from one location to another. It's very difficult to export any of the other byproducts like bitumen. So if we were to double our output, that would produce a significant amount of money for our sector, for our province, and for the livelihoods of a lot of people that rely on the oil, oil patch to, to build a better life for themselves. So I'm absolutely for having a pipeline. However, trying to meander through other governments' restrictions and other, other provinces having to work alongside Alberta, I think is a very difficult task. I think if we can get to some situation that pushes more oil to an international market where we compete with other, comp uh, other countries, I think that that would be hugely beneficial to us. Because right now we're only just selling to the United States or majorly selling to the United States and their production and their demand is dictating the price of what we sell our oil for. So if you have a different section of the world that's in direct competition determining how much your product is worth, I think that puts us at a deep disadvantage. I think you and I can remember in social studies when you learn about a, uh, a stimulus industry, I think they called it, but uh, uh, one industry that can stimulate an entire economy. And you learn about trickle-down economics, and I think the classic example in Alberta is oil and gas. It's a large industry, and it causes money to flow out to all the different industries, and they argue that uh, the success of Alberta is off the back of oil and gas. What's really interesting, though, is looking at this opinion piece from CBC, they said that one of the lead statistics they used to justify the war room effort was looking at the uh, gross domestic product, the uh, NGDP for Canada, and they said that the energy sector that uh, you know, oil and gas was like 10.6% of that or 221 billion. So there's this plea to the government and how oil and gas is handled in the entire country because we're saying, look, 10% 10, 10 of our entire profits and, and, and money comes from just this one thing that's mostly in this one province. Uh, what's really revealing though, and this was news to me, is they said that the statistic that was presented was cherry-picked because that statistic was uh, based on within the energy sector, not actually within the other industries as a whole. So as it says here, oil and gas accounts for only 0.9% of national employment, and it only makes up 5.6% of GDP compared to the 10% uh, that they were advertising. And there's a Statistics Canada table that's actually showing the number of jobs created uh, per million dollars in output. And within the province, uh, mining, quarrying, and oil and gas extraction is quite low. And there's about, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's like 10 other industries that rank higher for creating jobs within the province uh, per millions of dollars. So I guess the argument there would be uh, the more jobs we have, the, the healthier the economy might be. Is that fair to say? 
Well, the lower unemployment rate that we have, then we have people that are being productive and generally participating in in a social life and in the economy. If someone is not below the poverty line, then they're productive. I think that's the entire goal of society is to try and in, make sure that people are healthy and happy and productive in some regard, whether that be the arts or whether or not that be producing uh, oil and gas byproducts. So I think that so I think that creating jobs is great. I don't think you can. I don't think that anyone will take the stance that not creating jobs is uh, is the way to go. Here's a list of industries that have higher jobs created within the province compared to oil and gas. Educational services, by far and above, is outpacing every other industry by a good margin. Then there's arts, entertainment, and recreation. Uh, then we have a generic other services. Then there's accommodation and food services, government health services, retail trade, healthcare and social assistance, government education services, wholesale trade, construction, forestry and logging. So we have lots of other things that we can do in Alberta for the economy. And I think for a long time, there's been probably advertising. Like, I don't even know where I've seen it from, but you know, there's just, there's been so much, at this point, I guess it's fair to say probably propaganda. There's been so much propaganda selling a narrative that Alberta is strong based off of only its oil and, and gas. And, and we certainly were for, been this, for a large portion of time. We were, yeah. we were absolutely doing quite well. We got to a point um, up until the early 2000s where everything was great. Everything was amazing and booming in Alberta. Everyone wanted to be here. But for these politicians, it seems as though things changed too dramatically for them to want to adjust, and they kind of wanted to go on to the, the good old days. And my question is, why is the propaganda that our, that our political leaders are producing targeted towards the people that they're supposed to represent and why is it tar and why is it using our taxpayer money? I shouldn't have to pay a politician to tell me that oil and gas is important in my province. If I'm an educated taxpayer, I don't think that that's necessary for them to turn around and inefficiently collect my money and then pay a bunch of people to be upset on Twitter and point it back towards the people that are paying them to say these things, especially when the majority of people don't vote for the UCP. Well, there's, uh, I think there's a lot of promise in the tech industry, at least. I mean, tech's doing well everywhere, but being somebody who actually works in the tech industry in, in Calgary, there's just a, an amazing amount of, of growth and change in the industry, right? Like there's just so much in the way of new technologies and, and new softwares and then the demands of everybody working from home. There's, there's so much to learn and so much to do. And I think more than ever, a lot of companies are being forced to reinvest in their infrastructure. And when I say infrastructure, I mean their technology stack, right? If you look at the average mid-sized company, if you want to have business applications, if you want to have shared files and folders, if you want to have uh, a single sign-on for a user on any company computer, you're going to need some infrastructure set up. And 
the newest cutting edge stuff, you can put that in the cloud. You can do that remotely. But for most companies, and in a lot of cases, there still is a practical reason to have physical hardware on site in an office. And we ain't talking about no little Dell HP, you know, in the box computer in a corner. We're talking about like $20,000 servers, enterprise grade equipment that is in so many offices. You know, people often don't think about this. They don't think that we've got these big uh, servers or computers tucked away that are powering our businesses. But in a lot of cases, we are. And the life cycle of these servers can be anywhere from three to five years. And if people are really cheap or they keep extending warranties, they might be able to push things to seven years. But ultimately, eventually, these servers need to be replaced. And the amount of money they cost to replace causes a lot of companies to look at, well, do we want to stay with the status quo, right? So, so many medium-sized companies in their life cycle, I think are at this juncture. And from what I've seen, a lot of companies were just, their, their technology was just old enough, you know, over two years old, over three years old, that it was either coming up for renewal or when COVID hit, they were really forced to rethink things. Because in most cases, if you wanted to do things properly, you had to invest in new projects and new hardware if you're going to facilitate people working from home. And this opened the door for so many tech and IT companies to come in and say, well, here's the modern workplace. Here's how things work in the future. Let's rebuild your infrastructure, your technology stack. Let's make it future friendly. Let's set up work from home capabilities. Let's give people more power than they've ever had before. And so that is why tech is booming. But I think that this is going to have big impacts for companies because after COVID's over, why do you need to go back to the traditional in the office workplace? There's a, a time and a place for in-person communication, but with collaboration technologies like Teams, you can really get most of everything you need to get done if you have a webcam and a microphone. And so I think we're going through this very tough time where it's really hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But I think our companies that survive this terrible dark period are going to come out leaner, stronger, healthier, and hungrier than ever because they will have stripped down away all the excess, they would have pared down their budgets, and they would have had to invest in a new technology stack that's going to enable them to do everything their competitors are doing and more, to work efficiently, to work smarter. And I think that's going to create this hyper-accelerated economy when COVID has, has done its worst. Yeah, I think that there was such a shock to the system uh, in a lot of classical work environments and tech companies that have kind of stated, why do I need to commute? Every worker was going, why do I need to spend an hour and a half to two hours every single day inside of my car or taking public transit or taking away time from my life to benefit this company? And the company's also going, why do I need to rent out all this office space? Why do I need all these rooms in downtown? Why do I need to have this really primo location? It's far away from where everybody works that's in the hustle and bustle neighborhood when all of my communication is digital nowadays anyways. 
it's very nice to be able to walk down the street in downtown Calgary, downtown Edmonton, and meet someone physically in a meeting. But that's becoming alien to these people now. Back when I was interviewing for jobs outside of university, I was being told to go to conference rooms, to have digital conferences with people that weren't there. So I'd, there was this assumption that I should physically move where I am so I can have a digital communication with somebody. I think that's really catching up to everybody, and I think that the people that have been shocked into learning how to use Zoom and any other teleconferencing software, I think a lot of them are going to realize, like, wow, this is, this is crap in a lot of ways, but at least it beats my morning commute, or at least it beats this workplace culture where we all have to show up in the same concrete building and interact with each other and have to deal with each other. I'm surprised, or I'm looking forward to seeing the outcome and see what productivity is like for a lot of these companies. Because there is this assumption that if you don't have your manager monitoring your work constantly, do you actually get anything done? So I hope that we move towards a more free and agile work environment where someone goes, all right, I'm going to work from 7.30 till 4.30 today and no one's really going to care. I'll still be available on the phone or for communication from 9 till 5. And I'll be able to work on my own, to- my own terms and work in my pajamas as opposed to you have to be signed on at 8.59 and sign off at 5.01 and there's going to be constant spyware from your managerial, uh, from your managerial team making sure and checking up on you. I hope that, well, that we move away from this micromanaging type system that's in the current work environment. There's been a little bit of discussion I've seen about this concept of spyware on work from home, but somebody asked me, they're like, so tell me, Ajax, how many of your clients have asked for ways to check on the productivity of their employees working from home? And I I told them none, literally none of my clients across any of the companies that I've done work for have asked any way to check up on what their people are doing at home, because maybe it's just my uh, positivity or, or optimism, but I think most companies aren't worried about the productivity of their employees from home because their employees are, are getting the same amount of work done, if not more. And I think everyone's getting so hard hit by this that it, it's not like it's communism where the guy goes home and he's like, well, I'll get paid the same regardless of whether I do work or not. I think everyone's scared for their jobs. They're scared for their companies they work for. And you're going home. And you know what? Maybe you're not working for eight hours a day. But did you ever consider all that time that you waste at the office, the time talking, walking around the office, doing other things, getting distracted, being in, in meetings? Like realistically, you can go home and bust out an efficient, you know, five or six hour work day and get the same amount of work done that you'd probably do in eight hours at the office. Yeah, it really brings into question all of the work ethics and the 40 hour work week of how we kind of go about our business. It used to be, obviously, that you had to show up to the mine. You had to create a certain amount of ore in the bucket, and it had to be measured and quantified. And if you weren't making the sales or if you weren't producing the amount of quantity that you were contracted to, you'd get the boot. But for a lot of industries, it's a lot more complex than that. And it's more just, are you satisfied as a worker that 
your time is being used efficiently. And then on the flip side, is your manager or your superior confident that your time is being used efficiently and that they're exchanging services for the pay and you're producing enough value? And that's a very good question of, are people going to have to start thinking about this of going, well, am I happy when I'm not being productive? Now that it's in my car, now that it's in my court, and I get to determine how often I work or what frequency I work, and this my deadlines are approaching and things are slipping by. Why do they work for the job that they currently work for? And if they don't like it, and they don't enjoy being productive, then I think that causes a lot of self-reflection. Yep, none of none of our entrepreneurs are being repressed right now. None of them. None of the small businesses have been completely destroyed. Uh, in this uh, PDF, it talks about building on our enormous strengths as Canadians, but specifically as Albertans. And so it says here, Alberta has the youngest and best educated population in Canada. We have been bestowed with some of the most valuable natural resources on the face of the earth, many of which have not even begun to develop. So point one, we're smart. Point two, oh, we've we've got natural resources and, and ones that we're not even tapping, which I'm not sure what that's referring to. I hear we got some some dope diamond mines uh, well, we, up in the north, but I think those are you. We haven't uh, sold out to private companies yet, so we might as well just that's true. destroy some sections of beautiful uh, mountain yeah, range. Yeah, we, we have not been doing strip mining in the, the mountains and the foothills, but we could, we're, we're start, we could start doing that. Um, and then also in the prairies and then farther out east, there are natural deposits of radioactive materials that we could use. But I don't think that they're pushing for nuclear energy, even though that would be a bold new direction that would work on our strengths. I don't think they care about that. I think it's been a very terrible year for a lot of people. It's pretty rough. Well, this has been our provincial. Super fun. Super fun. Retrospective. Provincial episode where we talk about Mm -hmm. everything going right with our province. Because it's all going right. It's all going well. Nothing, Nothing amiss in the state of Alberta. Alberta's a, a happy state, prosperous state. None of the people in our state are unhappy. Yeah, come to Banff or Lake Louise or Canmore. Any of those local mountain towns, I'm sure that they're extremely happy to get your influx of seasonal travel and vacations uh, and to have as many raucous gatherings and parties as possible. Their mayors have definitely not gone out and said anything about that. So, as always, this has been Eddie Elfman. That's been Ajax. And and this has been and, the Domestic Yak Podcast. And this podcast is sponsored by Jason Kenny. You heard it here first. Oh, yes. Yes. By Jason Kenny's actions, he has sponsored this podcast. Paul. So keep in mind, if you're over the age of 70 and you make less than $400,000 a year, Jason Kenny is not okay with you being alive. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, I don't Google care. Playlists, I don't care where you can find us at. They're going to find us. Stuff. You can also find us now on Twitter. The Twitsphere, oh Instagram, God. and you can email us worst. all of your angry messages. Don't email at us. DomesticYakPod at gmail.com. Don't send us anything. Send us 
everything that you disagree with, and I will read it out verbatim, and I will argue with you in a delay of one week. Oh, that's... Thank you so oh, much. God.